HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, November 14th and 15th, convening hemp industry stakeholders to learn, connect, and grow. Details at pahempsummit.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and it is my very great pleasure to welcome back onto the network our beloved Lisa Held. Lisa is a full-time Civil Eats senior staff reporter now since 2015. She has reported on agriculture and the food system with an eye towards sustainability, equality, and health. And her stories have appeared in publications including The Guardian, The Washington Post, and Mother Jones. In the past, she covered health and wellness and was an editor at Well and Good. She is based in Baltimore, has a master's degree from Columbia University, and she is the former host of the very long-running Farm Report. And I'm not sure that show has been revived, Lisa, since you departed to become a much more important part of Civil Eats. <laughs> um, it's true. Um, I'm, I'm so happy to be here, Katie, and, and be um, back on, on HRN. Um, I'm hoping that... Um, the farm report comes back with a new host sometime soon. But yeah, unfortunately, I, I don't have the capacity to, to do it right now. I know. Position, a, but. <laughs> that's because you have a very important position at Civil Eats because you're like their senior reporter now. You're like, and you do a roundup for them every week as well. Isn't that right? Um, yeah, so I do have um, a, a news column called The Field Report. Um, right. It's not every week. We kind of um, run it when we feel like there is enough um, breaking news on the topics we cover I got you. To, to put it out. But um, yeah, that was kind of a new thing that we launched when I started full time because mm-hmm. at Civil Eats, we generally cover um, issues with longer kind of more in-depth stories. And we only want, run one story a day. We don't do a lot of right. quick newsy stuff. And, and since I came on and had a little more time to dedicate, we thought, well, maybe it'd be good to, to add a little bit of a a news um, element. So yeah, so that's that's fairly new, and I, I think it's it's been going pretty well. That's terrific. I, I mean, I certainly appreciate it and enjoy it. I mean, I I am a religious supporter of Civil Eats, so um, <laughs> thank you. Oh, <laughs> uh, seriously, no, I think it's one of the better publications going around right now. It's certainly, I mean, the in depth reporting is very few other places have the luxury to do that, and or the the right 
set of reporters in the right mindset, at least to report on the stories I'm interested in anyway. So I get a lot of information out of civil leads. Anyway, let's talk about um, the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health, which I sort of largely ignored. Um, (laughs) It happened on September 28th. I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm sort of a cynic about these events now, but you did sure. attend, Lisa, and you did write several, a couple of articles about it. Um, and it was, let us point out to our audience, the first major national conference on hunger and nutrition since 1969. Um, people might remember that there was a big documentary, I think in 68, um, that galvanized, uh, George McGovern, who then subsequently ran for president, as some of you in my age group might remember. Um, but his real, his signature achievement really was working with Bob Dole and creating, um, a sort of expanded version of, uh, food stamps, among other things. It certainly galvanized, uh, the government in addressing, uh, some of the major hunger issues that were prevalent in the United States then, just as they are now. Um, so what what odds do you give for anything as sweeping or meaningful <laughs> as the uh, expanded food stamp program and other safety net things that came out of the 1969 conference? Did you see, uh, do you feel like there was as much sort of um, federal, you know, uh, legislative interest this time around or was this largely window dressing, which is what I tend to see these things as? Right. Um, well, you know, there's there are a few ways to look at it. I mean, I, leading off to the conference, there was a lot of talk about how this was, you know, a pivotal moment. It was going to be transformational. You know, like you said, it it was supposed to lead to sweeping changes. Um, obviously, it's it's that's a lot of kind of um, rhetoric, and and what happens on the ground is is usually a little bit uh, less glamorous. Um, right. And I I think I think a lot of the um, significance um that was that was sort of promoted was to the event itself even happening so so like uh representative Jim McGovern who was one of the the people really pushing for the conference at the conference he said you know this is a big deal the president of the United States just announced that ending hunger and promoting good nutrition is a national priority so it was mm-hmm. like the fact that we're even in this room talking about this right. is really meaningful um but you know what's going to happen next obviously is is more important and um some of the things in the national strategy that they rolled out are steps that um federal agencies can take through rulemaking and things that they're already working on so like for instance um the USDA updated the thrifty food plan which determines how much money snap participants receive um they already did that they already are doing major expansions to the WIC program mm-hmm. because they got some funding through the American Rescue Plan so right. so there's like all there's this one list of things that are kind of already happening and they can point to and say like look this is part of our national strategy we're doing it already. Right. Um, and then there are these other things in the plan, many of which require congressional action to become reality. So right. things like the expansions of the child tax credit, school meal access expansions. Right. Um, so, you know, what will happen on that front is going to depend a lot on the midterm elections, what the Senate sure. and the House look like. Um, and, you know, there are these two big legislative opportunities coming up, the farm bill and potentially a child nutrition reauthorization. And those are both like on the horizon and could be these opportunities to get some of this stuff into legislation. But we don't know if that's going to be possible, right? Depending on, on who is, who is elected. So, 
Oof. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> it's a little scary to think that this really all comes down to who gets elected and whether or not the radical right prevails. Um, let's let's run through the five pillar strategy because um, I know. Well, wait before we get there. First of all, who was there? Like, what industry groups did you note? Were there lobbying groups? Were there corporate? You know, like was McDonald's there? Was Coke there? Was you know, yeah, a lot of times, you know, a lot of times those guys are, they want to keep a finger in that pie, right? I mean, they make money yeah, it's off like, of this. It's also like a really good question because leading up to the conference, like nobody knew who was going to be invited. Like they sent You're out the kidding. invites like the week before. Oh, come <laughs> was, on, really? Yeah, it was really crazy. And everyone was like, wait, is this conference even happening? You know, and then you'd hear Whoa. like one person got invited. And so they they kind of, um they kept it to the very last minute. Um, I would say, uh, so, you know, the the biggest thing was in terms of who was there was the president, which was you know the thing that, that is big. Up. Yeah, <laughs> um, that is big. And then you know um, a few a few other lawmakers: Cory Booker, Jim McGovern, uh, Shelley Pingree, um, and a few others. Um, one thing I should note is there was a lot of talk about bipartisanship and how hunger is a bipartisan issue. Um, the only Republican who was really involved was Senator Mike Braun. Um, mm-hmm. there, there was another, um, rep- the Republican Congresswoman, Jackie Walorski, who was oh, right. actually pushing really hard for the conference and, and really involved and, and she died tragically in a car accident, um, That's earlier right. this year. So that was, that was, um, crazy that, you know, that that happened and to not have her there. But, but it was, I mean, when you talk about who was in the room politically, it was definitely, almost all um, from the Democratic side of the aisle. Um, right. And then, yeah, and then in terms of, like, tons of adv- advocacy groups, like Food Corps, um, the Food Research Action Center, World Central Kitchen, um, you know, kind of who the who's who of, like, food advocacy leaders, like Mary right. Nessel, Ricardo Salvador, Sam Cass, um, right. those kind of people. And then industry, yeah, so... You know, I obviously don't – there was no, like, attendee list, so I don't know exactly. Oh, really? How frustrating. Yeah. I actually went back before this and looked at the um, the platform to see if – because, you know, sometimes like, sure. you go into your, the, the online platform and you can see every attendee, and I couldn't. So I, I, I don't know exactly, but there were definitely representatives from some big – um, food companies on a few of the panels. I know someone from Danone was represented. Um, mm-hmm. There was – I, I'm pretty sure there were people from DoorDash and Instacart in the room. Some of these, really? there was like, well, because there was this group of companies that um, made these external commitments that were aligned with the federal national or the the national right. strategy the federal government released. Um, so a lot of like, I, I think a lot of those companies essentially had a representative like invited. So you know, mm-hmm. like Chobani was one, and, right? Um, so, but it, it definitely didn't feel. There, there was definitely industry in the room. It didn't feel overtaken um, by that. Um, right. That's good. Yeah. And then the last category of people is they did, they, you know, they sort of made a nominal effort to include people who they, they, they say have, quote, lived experience. <laughs> so, right. which we all have. It's kind of a strange term. Um, but people, you know, just, 
I guess, who have experienced hunger. Well, people who sure. have experienced hunger and deprivation, yes. right, yeah. And, and then uh, also, like, school not nutrition Not middle-class white people, for God's sake. I mean, <laughs> right. right? I mean, you know, let's, we're not talking about middle-class white people here. We're talking about, you know, communities that have been underserved in a variety of ways due to, you know, basically racial profiling, but, you know, whatever. Sure, but a lot uh, of, I also think a lot of food <laughs> advocates... Um, come from all kinds of communities yes, and all that's, kinds of that's lived very experiences. True, of course. Yeah. 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 Um, no, that's, that is certainly true, but yeah, it's, it's heavily weighted towards, towards our demographic as opposed to theirs. I mean, it's nice that they actually had real hungry people show up and tell people what it was like to be hungry. I mean, right. Cause really understand, I mean, I don't know why I'm laughing about this, but it really is kind of comical in a funny way. Cause, or in a weird way. Right? Yeah, they, I mean, they're, the way that they said that they approached the um, making sure that people's, you know, experiences were represented is leading up to the conference. They had all these listening sessions where uh-huh. they invited groups around the around the country to host different groups of people. And, you know, like you could a, a town could do it, an advocacy group could do it and bring people in a room. Right. And then they were supposed to kind of submit their comments to the the conference organizers and then the conference organizers and um were supposed to kind of take all that information and incorporate it into the conference itself and the national strategy and right. um I don't but the whole process was very um opaque and I don't it's it's hard to know exactly how much of that really was considered um in oh, the strategy so That's yeah interesting yeah Wow. It's, I mean, it's, you know, I don't mean to make light of it because it is, it was obviously a very good faith effort here and we certainly need that. I can't remember quite how many people are uh, availing themselves of SNAP or, you know, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits right now or WIC, but it is, you know, in the tens of millions, pushing 30 million if I'm not mistaken. So, um, you know, it's no, this is, this is something we absolutely must address as a nation because it is affecting, uh, our future. Because if kids don't have enough to eat, right, Lisa, then they don't really get a lot out of school. And yeah, since that's a- I mean, that is the most fundamental piece of this whole thing. It's like, if you don't have adequate nutrition as a young child, then you do not thrive as an adult, period. So absolutely. Anyway, so that's why I mean it is a big deal. I don't mean to make fun of anything, but here, but it's just like the whole. It's just a little strange, but anyway. So um, let's talk about. Let's go through the five pillars here because the president announced this five pillar strategy that is going to be a national strategy. The first one is improving food access. I'm going to run through all five, and then we'll go back one by one. Improve mm-hmm. food, food access and affordability. Uh, integrate nutrition and health, number two. Number three, empower all consumers to make and have access to healthy choices. Pillar number four, support physical activity for four. And pillar number five, enhance nutrition and food security research, which I thought was a very interesting category to include in this as a pillar, shall we say, for um, national strategy. But anyway, um, let's go back to the improved food access and affordability. You mentioned at the top of the show the child tax credit, which uh, demonstrably, demonstrably improved uh, children's lives and uh, was allowed to expire this year. That was one of the ARP, American Rescue Plan, fundings that, it, you know, ran out of juice, right? Um, yes. Did you hear a lot of discussion around uh, reviving the child tax credit? And do you think there's enough momentum to make that happen at least? Um, I That was one of the biggest um, 
topics that kept coming up, I would say, mm-hmm. at the at the conference. Multiple speakers mentioned it, including um, several elected officials. Um, I, th- I think – I don't want to say the wrong thing. I think Debbie Stabenow brought it up, but I, I can't mm-hmm. remember exactly. Um, but it was definitely brought up over and over and over. And I think, you know, for obvious reasons, it's, it's kind of a very simple tweak. Um, and yeah. the – the you know the expansion earlier in the pandemic through the ARP as you mentioned it you know by it cut child poverty nearly in half and reduced food insecurity by about twenty six percent so right. um, one action that has really big impacts um, mm-hmm. but you know it's as I as I said before it's one of those things that it it needs like Congress has to extend it there's no way for the um, administration to extend it without congressional action so right. Um, it really will just depend on um, on the midterms. Yeah, because yeah. I, I mean, really. Ugh. Anyway, and say I think the same goes for universal free lunch for kids in school, right? It's kind of well, this, uh, the other side of that coin in a way. Yeah, I mean, universal free lunch is a little more um, complicated. I think so. I've covered this a lot lately, mm-hmm. actually, and so it, you're right. It's it's similar in that people are really pushing for universal um, free lunch in schools. It's one of the most popular proposals on the table in terms of food access. Um, it's So in terms of like a bill, it, it requires congressional action if we yep. want to say, okay, tomorrow all you know public schools in the country serve, serve universal uh, free lunch. And that's not going to happen. Uh, I mean, right now, politically, um, it's, you know, there's a lot of Republican opposition to it, and it just doesn't seem plausible. But um, what the national strategy that the administration put out had included in it um, was this pathway that sort of extends free meals to more and more students. And a lot of people are getting behind this this um pathway, which is in the first draft of the child nutrition reauthorization that the House mm. already put out. Um, and now groups are kind of pushing the Senate to include it in, in their version. Um, and it's, it's so it's, it's a little complicated. Do you want me to tr- explain sort of briefly how it would work? Yes. Why not? Um, okay. So, so basically there's this thing called the community eligibility provision that schools can opt for instead of um, providing school meals to everyone and then having to certify each student, whether each student qualifies for reduced or free lunch. Mm-hmm. They, If you have a certain percentage of your students who, um, through other measures, meet measures of poverty like SNAP enrollment, for instance, yep. um, at a certain level, say, I think it's 40% right now, um, you can say, okay, we're going to serve all meals free in our school because we meet this threshold. I and, see. And you get reimbursed a little bit differently from the federal government for those meals. So the per, the proposal that um, a lot of groups are pushing for, which is also in the national strategy, is essentially lowering um, the threshold. So if you have a smaller percentage of your school that meets the, the um, those requirements, you still would be able to opt in to this um, this system where you mm-hmm. get to provide free meals and um, they would up the reimbursement um, that the federal government is is giving you so that it actually makes sense financially because without that, it wouldn't make sense for schools. So it it would, you know, it would be, it's not every, tomorrow all schools are going to have free meals, but it would potentially really expand the number of schools that are offering 
free school right. meals. Right, right. Um, I just as an aside here, I don't want to spend too much more time on this, but um, you know, I'm I'm struggling to understand the Republican argument against extending uh, universal free lunch to public school students. Do you have a bead on what their objection to that is? Is it just the 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 money? It's it's just because you know what? Oh, we've spent too much money already on these other things, so. God forbid um, yeah. we roll back a tax cut or two, right? <laughs> I certainly I, yeah, wouldn't I, want to roll those back. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, no, it's okay. I think it's about. I definitely think it's it's about money. Although, um, actually, a lot of um, research has shown that it doesn't necessarily cost more because you eliminate a lot of costs in terms of um, having to certify individual students and the, the staff mm. required to do that. Um, but I, I guess there is. I, I've heard this argument that. Well, if we're going to provide free school meals to everyone, that means that this some of these federal tax dollars are going to pay for students who come from really wealthy families and then they and couldn't that money be spent elsewhere? Like couldn't it be directed to other access programs that are specifically for um you know, low income families? And I mean, mm-hmm. I I I guess I could see that, you know, that that you could get into the weeds on that, but um, yeah, I don't. I don't know that there's been a lot of like articulation of that argument, um, mm-hmm. other than just kind of this vague sense that it's money being spent. You know, <laughs> right? And oh God, we can't afford that because we wouldn't want to roll back a tax cut. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me, and I know it's not necessarily your uh, wheelhouse here, but. Um, there was an interesting reference to the promise that the Department of Defense will implement a, quote, new basic needs allowance, unquote, for military households. Do you, I mean, is this, is this, are they saying essentially that soldiers are not paid enough to feed their families? I, I, I mean, I don't know enough about um, this part of the strategy to comment on it. Um, right. I, I, I took a look at it before the call, and I mean, like you said, I all, all I can basically say is there are multiple provisions in the national strategy that do talk about the Department of Defense um, taking yeah. actions to ensure food access. So, I mean, yeah. I, I can't imagine. Um, there's no food insecurity among um, military families. Yeah. I know. It's. I mean, it's it's stunning to me. I mean, even though, as we said before we started the show, I mean, my own cousin got out of the military 28 years and had to go promptly had to go on food stamps um, because he just didn't wasn't you know he hadn't gotten a new job yet he had to get tra- you know whatever and he was he struggled you know this was on his pension I guess but this 28 years in the service you would have thought there'd be enough for him to feed his family. So it's yeah. unbelievable. Um, yeah, I don't what, know what the what the numbers are on like food insecurity. In, I'm actually going to start um, looking into this. I'm going to look into this. I think it's a really interesting idea, mm. um, or you know, just something that never gets talked about. And yet, as you just pointed out, there are numerous references to the Department of Defense and what they're going to do throughout each and every almost every one of these pillars includes a mention of the Department of Defense, and that is very significant to me. I was like, wow, that's a big big deal. Um, so what? Was there anything else that really stood out to you? It was, it was a whole raft of p- policy promises. I mean, people, it was literally paragraphs and paragraphs of of what Pillar 1, improved food access and affordability, was going to mean. Um, you know, expanding SNAP, expanding WIC, transportation to and from grocery stores was part of that, building more grocery stores to expand access. What else did you see that struck you, Lisa? 
Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot in there. I mean, I would say right at the top, um, the administration said they're going to work with Congress to raise the minimum wage. And um, right. that, I think, really um, is just a key issue. Um, and I, I just think, you know, all of these programs and there's so much emphasis on food prices and, and food access programs. And, you know, to me, I'm always looking for like, well, the reason people can't afford healthy food is low wages. And um, yeah. so I, I think um, sort of it, it's always um, a good thing when lawmakers are looking at the the root of, of the problem. And they even like mention um, supporting unionization efforts and the connection to mm. um, housing. Like you, if you don't have enough money to pay for housing, then, you know, people start cutting their food budgets. So yes. kind of looking at the root causes of hunger and, um, nutrition insecurity and really trying to address those root and like sort of systemic um, issues, I think could be really meaningful. They could be meaningful. They could be transformative as uh, the representative McGovern said. Um, But, you know, we'll see what happens. Like I said, in the midterms, we'll find out. Let's take a real short break now and then we'll come back and talk about the next few pillars. Uh, But right now we have to do a sponsor drop. So stay tuned for, for that. Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Join us for the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit trade show and reception at the Farm Show Complex in Harrisburg on November 14th and 15th. Connect with industry stakeholders and grow the industry together through our 2023 industry planning sessions, industry and legislature panel discussions, success story sharing, professional development workshops, and a research showcase. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. Okay, so we're back with Lisa Held from Civil Eats. We're talking about the um, Congressional uh, Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health. Um, So pillar number two of the national strategy was integrate nutrition and health. I thought that was really interesting also. So the idea is sort of this food as medicine, which has been gaining steam in I guess, all policy circles, but now as part of this national strategy. Did anything strike you as new or unusual about the proposals in this category? Um, One thing that a lot of people talked about um, at the conference was this idea of medically tailored meals um, for Medicare and Medicaid participants. So, um, you know, meals that are specifically um, structured around health needs, like, you know, if you have diabetes and you need to eat differently, um, if you, um, you know, hypertension, all of those diet related diseases basically need to be addressed through food. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, um, I, I don't know, there was a lot of, a lot of talk about that and and excitement Mm -hmm. around it. Um, I will say that the mention of this, um, is very much in the beginning stages. It said that, um, you know, the administration supports legislation to create a pilot to test medically tailored meals, which means like right. there needs to be legislation, then they need to test it. And so it's, it's, it would be a long way out. Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that I think was definitely one of the more popular um, proposals in, in that area. And just, there was a lot in there around, um, more act, more resources for Medicaid and Medicare participants on um, nutrition and obesity counseling and just mm-hmm. resources for people if they need them. 
Right, right. I, I was especially struck by the numerous references to screening for food insecurity by health tra- practitioners. You know, in other words, like you go to the doctor and they don't just say, you know, where does it hurt? They say, well, what are you eating? Well, do you know, if you have diabetes, do you eat this, that, or, you know, whatever it is. But I mean, you know, that there would be a whole new layer of screening going on in routine doctor visits for which there would have to be training, for which obviously there would have to be funding. Um, but, a, but a very different way of looking at health than I think anybody who has, you know, in the last 50 years gone to a doctor where you get your 15 minutes of fame in the doctor's office and you're lucky if you get to blurt out what's actually wrong with you, right? Much less actually discuss how you eat and sleep yeah. and, act, you know, and how much physical activity you get and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, you don't get a lot of wellness times, as it were, with, the, with your regular doctor visits, I've noticed. Um, yeah. Well, there, there, and there's almost like two things in there. It's like the, there, there has been a lot of attention over the past um, decades around the sort of disconnect between nutrition and healthcare, like you're talking yeah. about, you know, that like doctors are taught to prescribe, not to um, give health advice, not to help prevent the the conditions that they then are tasked with treating. And, and right. a lot of people have tried to um, propose all kinds of initiatives to close that gap. Um, but th- I mean, this particular um, kind of approach of just screening for food insecurity, I think you're right. It's really interesting. And a lot of people were talking about it. I talked to one pediatrician at the conference who said it's just really crucial that, you know, doctors, I mean, it's literally just asking, like, like, mm-hmm. is your family, is your kid getting enough to eat? What are they eating? How, you know, how often are they eating? And right. it, but, but the, the issue is that physicians aren't trained to do that and it has to be done with empathy and it has to be done with, you know, in a way that makes people willing to, to talk about it, right? Absolutely, and, right. Um, so, I mean, the, the as so I mentioned earlier, there was sort of these outside commitments alongside the conference made by companies and also nonprofits. And right. um, as part of that, a, a few big um, healthcare systems actually like made pledges to train some of their physicians and other healthcare healthcare professionals to screen for food insecurity. So that mm-hmm. I mean, you know, those are kind of those pledges are kind of interesting because there's not, uh, you know, it's unclear how those are going to be tracked. What, right. What, what how they're going to be held accountable? Vilsack at the conference. Right. The agriculture secretary Tom Vilsack at the conference. We asked. We had a press conference. And we asked him. Are, are you guys going to like check up on these on these people and say like yeah. did you meet these pledges and he was like oh yeah we're we're going he said you know we're going to have to figure that out but like just like we've been talking about it's hard to know exactly um what will happen but I did I do think that that could um make a really big difference if if that kind of screening was happening and then they were be if if they were finding people who are food insecure, then you're, you can connect them to programs, right? Like to WIC resources. And, yeah. And a, and a lot of times there are barriers, um, you know, uh, of various different kinds to people accessing SNAP or WIC, uh, whether it's just lack of knowledge and awareness, lack of documentation, or, you know, whatever. I mean, right. there are so many ways in which people are thwarted in um, receiving the assistance to which they may well be entitled. So, um, but let's, let's move on to pillar number three, which I loved because this is all about labeling. Um, empower all consumers to make and have access to healthy choices. Uh, this was incredibly ambitious. First of all, it started with like lowering the salt and sugar in packaged foods. 
uh, front of product labeling, nutrition labeling, expanding incentives to buy fresh fruit and vegetables, addressing the marketing of unhealthy foods. I mean, wow. <laughs> this, this is, I mean, right? Like, uh, you kind of wonder why it isn't happening already. But what I, you know, my first thought was like, how far out of committee do you think any of these proposals will get? You know what I mean? Like, this is all... Like the food industry is going to, you know, their hair is going to explode. I mean, they're, they're just, yeah, it's never going to happen. But, you know, we can well, hope. Yeah, well, and some of this stuff is like voluntary. So like I, I'm, I'm, I would have to go back and, and check this. I'm pretty sure the sodium targets are voluntary. So. Um, okay, then. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, so it, it still could be significant for the government to, to set them and, and keep lowering them and say this is the ideal amount of salt. But I, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't involve any regulation of how right. much salt is going into food. So um, there's probably more of a possibility that, that they could move it forward. Um, I, I will say the F, so one thing that was in there that the FDA has already actually moved on um, and there's an, uh, an uh, a call scheduled for this afternoon, actually. Um, really? to to talk about um some of the the initiatives that they've already um made progress on one is um this new definition of healthy the, um so when and when you can use the word, the term healthy on a label right um, interesting so that they've already yeah. proposed a new draft uh, um uh, of that rule um and then but that that was like i guess that one is sort of easy to move forward it's it's very much in their jurisdiction to do that um and then some of the other stuff that is more ambitious will take a lot longer and, you know, is kind of unknown. Like, for instance, one thing a lot of people were talking about was this idea of front of pack labeling where yeah. nutrition facts are, on the you know, put on the front of a um, food instead of the back. And, right. um, you know, there's a lot of research on on that approach being incredibly powerful. Like, it, it has been shown to really help people make healthier choices. Um, sure. And identify, like accurately identify healthier foods. Um, but they did include a section on front of pack labeling, but it was it was kind of like the the one I mentioned earlier, like it said, you know, FDA will conduct research and propose developing front of pack labeling. So oh, it's really? like you know, it might be a while, basically. Yeah. Um, Which is it's interesting yeah. because that I mean, it's come up very often. I mean, in the in the twelve or almost thirteen years I've been doing this show. Uh, that concept has been introduced again and again and again, and clearly it has been squashed again and again and again by the industry, the food industry that does not really want people to read their nutrition labels, right? I mean, hmm. because uh, it, honestly, this is not a new idea. Like yeah, trying to no, pack I, ma- that's labeling. I, I haven't, I don't know, I haven't covered this particular issue a lot, so mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know a lot of the history, but... Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I've talked about this with numerous people, including Marion Nessel and various other, you know, sort of food food advocates, as, for lack of a better term. And yeah, I mean, people have been pushing for this for a long time, and it's it just doesn't go anywhere. So um, let's move mm-hmm. on, though. The pillar four, support physical activity for all. Now, I know neither you nor I are an expert on this, but this was another big omnibus bill uh, proposal, um, mostly to try to get people to, I guess, get out of their houses and uh, away from their screens. Uh, It suggested transportation to parks and underserved communities, free passes to parks for families, rigorous phys ed requirements in school. Now, that would be amazing. I mean, I know when my kid was going through the public school system, uh, phys ed was relegated to about 20 minutes a week, once a week. And even then she flunked. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but I mean, you know, like if you hate sports the way I did, and she obviously does, um, you know, 20, 20 minutes a week sounds great to me. Um, you know, rather than uh, we had an hour, I think we had at least an we had two recesses and then lunchtime you could play outside, but then also mm. we had real phys ed probably two or three times a week, I think. And that yeah. has gone away along with, you know, arts and music, for example. I mean, it's just sort of extraneous programming that people stop taking seriously. But that was a big deal when I was growing up in the 60s because John F. Kennedy was a great proponent of phys ed, right? And it became a big mm. requirement in schools. And he launched a national program to encourage uh, school children to play sports and have phys ed. And that, is that went where away. The, I'm, I'm curious, is that where the presidential fitness challenge came from? Do you remember yes. that? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, it came out of the this Kennedy era. This is not era. my area of expertise at all. But Right. Yeah, well, I I, I'm just that. old enough to remember because I'm, I'm a boomer, right? So in the 60s, that was a big deal, John F. Kennedy. And then there was the presidential fitness challenge or whatever it was that came out of that. Um, but it was during, if I'm not mistaken, and, you know, Correct me if I'm wrong, people, but if I'm not mistaken, once again, the Ronald Reagan era rears its ugly head when basically funding to schools was cut to the bone. And that's when things like the arts and phys ed began to become less and less well-funded in the school system in the United States. So, but we could we could do some research on that. Um, so our last one was pillar number five, enhanced nutrition and food security research I didn't even know there was such a thing. What? Well, actually, I did, but still. What did people have to say about this category that you thought represented real innovative thinking about the con the topic? I mean, I, for instance, was surprised by the connecting climate change to food security and nutrition. What did What did you think was most interesting about that category? Yeah. Um, so there was one panel on on this topic um at the conference which i did not attend um so i i didn't get uh, a ton of on that <laughs> there were because there were multiple panels happening simultaneously of so course. you can go to everyone yeah um but i would say so i mean like you obviously i i am very interested in um you know the connection between food security nutrition and and climate um i you know the study just came out this week on the climate impacts of the food system. And then we also know the food system is so oh, vulnerable right. to the climate crisis, right? And absolutely, um, there's research showing that climate impacts could reduce nutrients in certain foods. So I, I mean, I think like probably the research on that front is somewhere that could really, um, where we could really use more um, mm -hmm. innovation. And, you know, we, we need to like identify crops that are both nutrient dense and very resilient to climate impacts. And that's and, right. Um, like I, I, I've covered some interesting research happening on rice and, and identifying, um, varieties of rice that can be grown, um, in dry conditions, things like that, mm -hmm. which it's kind of cool. But, but I would say at the conference or, and in the strategy, most of the research that was talked about more was on the nutrition side and, um, mm. You know, it's it's kind of interesting to me because on one hand, like nutrition research is fairly new compared to other fields of study, and I guess there's still some conflicting information. I I don't know. To me, though, I always feel like the important things are pretty clear and established. Um, yeah. But I don't know. Like I interviewed um, Darius Mazafarian, who is mm -hmm. um, the dean at Tufts School of Nutrition, and was very involved in the lead up to the conference um, right. a few months ago, and he he was really like really jazzed up about this particular issue and he said like there's still a lot of nutrition research needed and a lot of questions we need to answer and I think like 
a lot of it was about research on how to translate like nutrition information into like practical use, you know, because it's like, even if we know like you need vitamin C, you need this. It's like, what does that mean in terms of like how people eat, Mm -hmm. how they get their food, how they identify things as healthy or, you know, if they have access to that. And so I like, I guess like it's, I think the good thing about this pillar is that it did include a lot of broad kind of, you know, sort of like a systemic, looked like systemic thinking around like, it's not just nutrition on like how much protein versus carbs you need, but it's like how do you actually implement um, nutrition policies in yeah. a way that effectively changes how people eat and how healthy they are. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. I do know what you mean. I think that's that's exactly the, a very well-drawn point you're making there. It's like because that, that seems to be in a lot of ways where people slip between the two stools, right? It's like we know what we're supposed to do. Um, and we know what the outcome of doing it right would be, but we somehow can't seem to get from where was what we're supposed to do to doing it right because there's such a knowledge gap around those fundamental issues that regard nutrition and 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 public health, and we just exactly. don't really deal with that, right? So, right. Anyway, um, what about so we got to wrap this up in a couple of minutes, but I just want to like, were there any quotes? I know that you had to wrap up. You know, one of your pieces for Civil Eats was like a series of quotes from various attendees. Was there anybody in particular who you thought had uh, something? Uh, unusual and important to say. I mean, you know, because everybody was like, oh, this was so great. And I really believe in X pillar, Y pillar, Z pillar. But, you know, what what struck you in the in the end of, from the attendees that you interviewed? Um, I mean, I so I interviewed a lot of people and, you know, they kind of all sort of talked about their areas, their individual areas of expertise, mm-hmm. um, which were different. Um I guess um, I'm, I'm taking a look at the story now. I guess um, one thing that that I thought was significant that um, I I guess refers back to what I said in the beginning about you know raising wages and and looking at things like housing and and right. Um, um, it, it I interviewed um, Mike Curtin, who's the the current leader of DC Central Kitchen, and then mm-hmm. Robert Egger, who's the founder of DC Central Kitchen, but now leads a uh, he's a board member at world central kitchen. Um, I, I think like what they, they had a lot to say about, um, kind of the roots of hunger and the power mm-hmm. of big food companies. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what jumped out at me too, Lisa. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that <laughs> because of all those quotes, Robert Egger was the one I thought was the most interesting. Yeah. I mean, he's just such a fascinating, um, person and, and yeah. he's always had kind of, um, big ideas that are counter to, uh, um, what a lot of other people are thinking and doing. Yeah. Um, but do you, you mind, know, it's do like, you have that quote? Can you read that quote just right now? Just so yeah, sure. Because I thought it was really thoughtful. Go yeah, ahead. he said we've been pushing really bad food on poor people for decades in the name of charity. We need to get out of the charitable food business and into the economic opportunity business. One thing that isn't on everyone's radar is procurement reform. He's talking about, you know, um, the way that uh, school foods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, prisons. Um, Yeah. yeah, So he says until city, county, state, and federal food contracts for prison, schools, Meals on Wheels, et cetera, go from low bid to best value, multinational food companies will retain a vice grip on the very pivotal spots where we need new food coming in. Yeah. Uh, we this is Bingo. good. We could be 
He Bingo. says we could be a lot more honest and forthright and even hurt some feelings. And that would be a good thing because yeah. there are certain things when we come to conferences like this that we are afraid to say out loud. And one of them is that corporate food has an unhealthy grip on our food system. Yes. Yeah. Really um, fantastic. It was a great piece, by the way. Oh, and thanks. so was your lead up. I enjoyed both of them. I learned a lot. And then Marion Nestle, by the way, for people who are interested in learning more about this, also had some very interesting thoughts on her blog, Food Politics, which if you don't follow, you really must. Um, so it was it was a, a fascinating. We'll see what happens. But I mean, the whole point of asking you to discuss this was that uh, for many people like me who didn't really tune into this on September 28th when it happened, um, these are things going forward as we move through the midterms and into the next presidential cycle that we want to keep front of mind. Uh, about national and public health, especially in the wake of this pandemic. So, um, Lisa, I, I want to give you this opportunity to just promote yourself shamelessly. Where can people learn more about you, read your stories? Do you have a web page? You know, all of that good stuff. <laughs> um, sure. Um, at the moment, pretty much all of my writing is, is on Civil Eats. So it's just civileats.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Lisa Elaine H. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. All right. Well, keep in touch. I really enjoyed talking with you. It was very nice to catch up after all this time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to my sponsors, as always, and we'll see you next time. Have a good week. Thanks, Katie. You betcha. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.